blessed to have the sermon today by Mr. Matthew Steele entitled Cloud of Witnesses. Hello again. Well, for those of you that don't know, our family recently took a small excursion. Uh, it wasn't that small, actually. It was uh, what I think we were calling a once-in-a-lifetime trip. Um, we, uh, we flew from Dallas to London Heathrow and then into Cairo. And my son is excited about the memory of it even now. And uh, it was, it was exciting, it was an adventure. And uh, we got to stand on a whole other continent that I had not been on before, that none of us had been on, well, maybe, no? So it was an amazing trip. And I wish I could do mind melts with everybody and share everything that we saw and learned and there's just a rich history there um, in so many different ways and so many different lessons that we learned and truths that we we garnered you think well how can you get truths from an ancient pagan religion well it reveals the heart of man it reveals the same things that we strive for today you know, their whole religious setup in, in Egypt was about wanting to not die, wanting eternal life, wanting to continue on after our physical bodies have uh, worn out. And so there was just so much that we, we learned from that trip. And then on the way back, we arrived in Rome, which was our, uh, our kind of our hub, in order to come back home. And, and when, uh, when we were making all of our bookings and everything, I was like, there's no way that we can go through Rome and not see anything of it. And so we tacked on a whole two days to see a two, what, 3,000-year-old city in two days. We didn't see the whole city in two days but we, we really did enjoy our time there. And even though we spent a lot of time in Egypt, and I'm sure I'll, I'll have an opportunity to, to share some of those experiences in the future, what I'd like to do, with your permission, is share some of the insights that we got from being in Rome. As far as understanding and learning about history, Western civilization is more what I have learned and studied in the past. And Renee and Joseph are our experts in our family on Egypt. But I am fascinated by the history of Western civilization. And of course, we have to all admit that it is greatly shaped by the power and the influence, the culture of the Roman Empire. Even still today, we are shaped by that empire. And so I want to share some, some ideas and some thoughts that I, I garnered from that part of the trip. But 
Before I do, Brian has a couple of pictures. Here we are, just proof that we did make it to Egypt. I don't know if you, many of you have seen those pictures. So that is, I think, the Great Pyramid, right, Joseph? That was the Great Pyramid, which is in Giza, which is just outside of Cairo, and it is in the northern part of the country. But, just to confuse everything, we then really started our tour after that by going to Upper Egypt. Upper Egypt, Joseph could come up and give us a whole diagram on this, which is actually south of the country. Because it's ele elevation, because the, the Nile is flowing to the north from the south. So the next picture here, we are outside of this very famous temple. I'm sure you've all seen a picture at some point of this temple structure. Is this the one in Abu Simbel? This is the Queen's Temple. So this is the smaller one. I think I picked the wrong picture. There's another one where even more massive statues, and they're all sitting there. One of them's broken and fallen down. But this temple and the, the other one of Abu Simbel, the, the big one, were carved into the mountainside. And because of the work in building the dam, the Aswan Dam, I'm just making sure with my experts over here I'm getting it correct, these temples were going to be flooded. So the world got together in the 1960s, I think it was, and moved two of the mountainsides. They cut them up and moved them to their current location and put them in a higher elevation to keep them for civilization. And they are amazing. And we'll sh we can show you pictures of the inside. The, <laughs> the imagery is it's hard to describe obviously tells the story of the culture of the people, of the, the pharaohs at the time, of their desires for eternal life. It's very central to a lot of what we're seeing here. And these places were for the elite. The regular run-of-the-mill people like us in Egypt in that time didn't get to see those, these places. They were elite places. And then our next picture, proof that we went to Rome. Anybody recognize the building in the background? It is the Colosseum. And there's a lot of interesting connections between Rome and the Colosseum. I mean, Rome and, and Egypt, I should say. N not least the fact that Rome stole a whole bunch of Egyptian obelisks and put them all over the city. And it was a way in which they could take anything they wanted. They were so powerful. They ruled the world. They ruled the known world. And they were so powerful they could take your stuff and put it on a plinth and magnify it. And then later on even come along with the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church and stick a cross on top of an ancient Egyptian obelisk. All of these amazing connections we got, we got to see. It's, but one of the things I'd like to share with you is 
not one of these grand structures. It's actually a small church, relatively speaking. It's bigger than ours. Of course, it has to be. It's in Rome. But as far as other structures in Rome, it's a really smaller structure. It's a, ch a church that's on a normal-looking street. It's actually kind of nestled within a typical residential area with townhouses around it. And then on the back of it, this huge government complex and the Office of Italian Statistics, of all places. And, and it's in a really interesting spot. And this is the church. We were gifted the opportunity to explore this church. And it's a privilege to have what essentially ended up being a private tour by a gentleman who is a caretaker and historian of the church. And we did this on our last full day in Rome. We packed in as much as we could. And we've been told about this church by uh, our archaeologist friend. And there's a very powerful connection between this church location, maybe not this current structure, but this church location, and the early church in Rome. So we were excited to, to root out where this church was and to tour it. But when we got there, it was closed. And the taxi had dropped us off in the middle of this residential street. We're like, okay, we're going to have to walk a little bit to get another taxi. But then we saw a little sign, and it said, well, if you'd like to see the church, and it was even in English, which was very helpful. Speaking of tongues, it's the only one I speak. So on this sign, it said, call this number if you'd like to see the church. So I was like, well, what was it? About four, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. What are the chances? Well, we called the number, and a very kind gentleman by the name of Mario answered the phone. See if I remember his name. Mari, Mario Antonucci, something like that. Sorry, Mario, I messed up your name. And he said, well, I can't be there right away. Can you give me an hour? <sighs> yeah, I can give you longer than that. But he's like, no, an hour's fine. And so an hour later, me meanwhile, we, went, we found a coffee shop. We had some cappuccinos, as you do, because you're in Rome. We had so much coffee while we were traveling around. Probably needed it. An hour later, we meet Mario at the back of the church. That was the only entrance he could currently use. And he led us into the church building. And it was actually, the area that he took us to was where the organist sits and plays. And in fact, Benjamin got to play the organ in this church. The church itself occupies a site that is, by all accounts, the oldest church in Rome. Oldest church in Rome. Something that even the Catholic Church begrudgingly agrees to. Because, of course, they've got, uh, what is it, the Basilica of St. John Lateran, that is, is the first official church under Constantine 
that you know was consecrated for the church, and I'm using the church term loosely. You understand with the Catholic Church, but that's the one that they all point to. And then, of course, you've got the massive and just the amazing St. Peter's Basilica as well. But this church is actually the location of the oldest church in Rome. The current church is relatively new. So this one dates, I mean, it's, it's really very new. It's, it dates from the 4th century AD. So 400 or so AD. That's the new church. Mario was able to show us parts of the church structure, though, that were older than that. Some of the parts of the church structure had bricks in them that were from the second century AD, 1900 or so years ago. I'm not too sure our church building will be here in about 1900 years. So think about that. The bricks actually got to touch these bricks that were laid in mortar in that place almost 2,000 years ago. But that is actually not the oldest church on this site. Because it's actually 30 feet down from the current street level. So 30 feet below the outside where we, we came in. And, and e even the, the church itself, you drop down into the floor of the sanctuary. Below that was another substructure, part of the foundation of the current building, that dates from the first century. That is the time of the church growing this fledgling church in Rome. That is the time when Peter and Paul and all the other disciples were in Rome receiving letters from Paul and then eventually receiving him and then later receiving Peter. The name of this church, the current structure, is the Basilica de Santa Pudienzia, if I said that right. My wife's going to correct me. Say it again. Pudenziana. And so basilica, I learned why we were, I was like, why is everything called basilica and not just church? Well, basilica just is a Latin term that means large public building for, for public gatherings. And so whenever you see basilicas, it's not a fancy word as such. It just means, oh, yeah, it's a big meeting hall. That's, that's the basilica part. But why Pudenziana? I just cannot say that right. Why that name? Well, the name actually comes from the daughter of the original owner of the property. The original owner of the property actually had a house there. And there are even records going into um, 100, what is it, 154 AD. They have church records that show that the title for that, that house, or that property where the church was built, was given to Pope Pius I. 
in 154 A.D. And the family that owned it, that gave it to the Pope, were the descendants of the senator who owned the property, who had his house there. And his name was Pudente in the Latin. I got that word right. Now, you might ask, well, why is this important? Why is this important? Well, in the Apostle Paul's last letter to Timothy, he wrote from Rome. And as he was wrapping up his epistle, he writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19. It says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of cannot say that name. Erastus stayed at Corinth, but Trophimius I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Did you notice the name? Pudens, the name Pudens, which is mentioned here, is translated from the Greek, but it was also almost certainly the same Pudente in the Latin. And there is very strong evidence that Pudente was the Pudens that Paul was referring to, a Roman senator who was converted Christianity. Think about that. A Roman senator converted to Christianity. And he was actually converted by his wife and his father-in-law. And his dominant, or domus, I should say, his home became the domus prudentianus. Did I say it right? I think I said it right which literally means the home of Pudens, or what became the home church of Pudens. The same Pudens that Paul was writing to Timothy about and sending these greetings. There's further evidence of the history of this place. It appears that the Pudens family were in the construction business because the bricks cast in the middle second century AD have been found in the walls of the church with the seal of the manufacturer. And I think right here are the second century bricks. And then the next slide is the seal of the Pudens family and their construction of the manufacturer of bricks that were used in that, that part of the structure. So about a hundred years or so after the church, the early church, was there. And there's, there's, there's plenty more evidence that I really don't have time to, uh, to dig into today, but they make a really compelling case about the connection between this place, the early church, the apostles Peter and Paul that would have visited this church, and of course, the place from which Paul was taken and arrested and finally executed. 
as we were given a tour around this ancient church with, this, uh, with Mario as our guide, we could hear Benjamin playing the organ in the background. He was praying, pr- playing praise music, praise and worship music, on this, this old organ in this ancient, ancient church. And it was a very special moment. I, just, I personally just felt a real connection to the saints of the past who had arrived in Rome, the very center of pagan domination of the world. They arrived in Rome through different means, by different ways, and they had converted to Christianity. And I'm not talking about the Catholic Church that later comes in Rome. I am talking about the real saints that Peter and Paul taught and the countless others that we don't even know who their names are. These were real men and women with real lives living in this pagan city in the heart of a pagan empire. It would be, what, 270, 280 years before Christianity, such as it became, would be accepted within the Roman capital under Constantine. They had real struggles, just like we do. They had to work, just like we do. Remember Paul was a tent maker? He wasn't, you know, some great evangelist being flown around the Middle East on his, you know, airplane. He was shipwrecked and sailing and walking and working his way around the, the, the world as it was then to preach the gospel. He had to work like we did. The other disciples, they had to raise their children just like we did. They dealt with sickness. They had dealt with their fair share of abuse, persecution, insult on every side. They did all the normal things of life while also living in a world that was designed to crush their faith. The whole world was against them. Do you sometimes feel like the whole world is against us as Christians? As we see things changing around us in our culture? Yeah, but imagine what it felt like for them. And I think if if we could bring them up out of the grave today, I think they'd find our world sadly becoming more and more familiar to them and the world that they lived in in Rome. Perhaps we've not yet struggled to bloodshed as they did, but we can see that perhaps there might be a time when we have to and when we might really understand what it is to live in a city in a world that is as pagan as Rome was. So what can we do? What can we do about all this? What lessons can we take from this early church, from this sacred location where, where the truth of God was brought to this pagan city and where so many men and women dedicated themselves in faith 
lessons can we learn? Well, I believe that Paul is the author of Hebrews, and in chapter 11, verse 1, a very famous passage, he says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Just thinking about this early church in Rome, this location in Rome, and, and Peter and Paul being there, and, and, and Putin and Claudia, and Linus, and Timothy traveling there, thinking of, these are real people. And it was the connection to the place, being there, having the privilege of being there, really gave it a new element of life. Real people living this life of faith. The same life of faith that we have chosen to follow. Think about that that we have chosen to live this same life of faith as they did. You know, there's something even more interesting about the family of Putin. And uh, I might send you on a wild uh, goose chase and a, a search on the Internet, and, and I'd recommend that you do. According to some very strong traditions, it is believed that Putin's and Claudia, mentioned by Paul in his letter to Timothy, were actually married. And Claudia was adopted by Claudius, the Caesar at, at the time of her adoption. And the reason why that's important is it seems that Putin's and Claudia were somewhat immune from the persecution that went around Rome against the Christians. And through their political connections, through being connected with Caesar's family. You might think, well, how, how did that happen? How does somebody get adopted by Caesar? I wouldn't mind being adopted by Caesar. Anybody want all the goodies that come with that? Well, Claudius was originally, uh, by many accounts, not from Rome, but she was from my country. She was from Britain. And she was the daughter of a very famous British king at the time, which we can look this up from Roman history itself, by the name of Caractacus. Anybody heard that name before? Joseph's heard that name. Caractacus. Apart from it being a very cool-sounding name, he was essentially a, a chieftain of the barbarian Britons that Rome conquered. And 
he gave such a powerful speech to, to the Roman Senate that he was able to persuade them not to kill him. So he had a lot of, uh, you know, skin in the game, as they say. And apparently this speech was so powerful that he and his family got to stay in Rome. And eventually his daughter married Putin, and Putin's house actually became referred to as the Palatia Britannica, the palace of the Britons in Rome. And there's actually even more really interesting history about Britann Britannic engagement in Roman politics that comes, comes a bit later. But fascinating story. I'd, I'd recommend that you, that you look at that. Of course, 2,000 years of history, we can't be absolutely clear on all these facts, right? We can't know all of these things for certain. But we can see through, through history how the faithful believers have endured incredible hardships in order to keep and pass on this faith that we have chosen to follow just like they chose to follow. In Hebrews 11, Paul continues, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he had received an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Think about his faith. Going out into this wilderness, going out into this unknown land, looking for a city that would be built by God. Think about the people of the early church living in this great and powerful city and then choosing to look for a city that was built by God over all the wealth and all the power and all the opportunities that they could have in Rome. What a struggle they must have had. Was it easy for them to choose this way? I feel like for me, it's been difficult to choose this way at times. Has it been easy for you to continue in this faith, to never have doubts? Of course we have doubts. But through those doubts, we continue to believe and have faith and follow we commit ourselves to the God that has called us to go out into the wilderness with us and find and look for a city. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, we'll find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is what we've been called to, isn't it? This is the level of faith. This is an all-in faith. All-in. 
nothing held back following Jesus. This is what we've decided to do. We've committed ourselves to doing this. We're not just playing church. We're not just called to be here and hang out and have fellowship and snacks after a, a time of praise and, and teaching. All those things are good, and we need those things. They support us and help us, but that's not the goal. Goal is what? To follow Jesus Christ. To keep the faith once delivered. To keep the faith that Paul had, to keep the faith that Putin's had, that Timothy had. To pick up our own particular burdens and follow Jesus wherever he may take us. We're giving our life now. We should be giving our life now so that we can have life eternal with him. The same human desire that we saw on the walls of these ancient Egyptian temples, three and four thousand years old, same human desire to live forever, to not die. And it has been offered to us. In Hebrews 11 and verse 11, he continues, By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful, who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky, in multitude innumerable, like the sand in the seashore. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but we too have been born in a sense, in a spiritual sense, from one that was not just as good as dead, but was dead. Through Christ Jesus, through his blood, we were able to be born into the family of God. We are born from him who is good as dead. I'm going to just skip forward a little bit, Brian, to Hebrews 11, verse 13. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but seeing them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had called to mind that country which they had come out, they would have opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that it's a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Think about that. God has prepared a city for you. For you, not just for us, not just the collective. He has prepared a city for you. In that city, you are accepted. In that city, your weird, quirky ways are loved and appreciated. In that city, you're not an outcast. You belong there. He has 
created a place for us, a home for us, where we can rest, where we can be at peace, where we can celebrate, where we can do all the beautiful things that, that we like to do in a city. I've been blessed to see many different cities. I've, I've, I've seen Paris, I've seen London, now Rome, Cairo, Tulsa. <laughs> so many cities. And there are so many more to see. And all of them have their beauty. Some of the architecture in Rome is just breathtaking. And even the ancient structures that are collapsing and, 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 and being eroded by, by rain and, and the pressure of time, even those things are beautiful. Imagine what the city of God is going to be like. A city that never decays. A city that stands atop of every city. A city that we are at home in. Not a city with monstrous concrete buildings everywhere. I don't want that kind of city. But a beautiful place prepared just for you. Dropping down to verse 32, Paul continues, he says, And what more shall I say about the faith of those that have gone before us? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and uh, Jephthah, and also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith of subdued kingdoms worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So one of the other places, as I gave you proof of, earlier that we visited in Rome was the Colosseum. I don't know if you know much about the history of the Colosseum. Probably uh, remember the movie Gladiator, right? And, and other movies where great battles were performed and where the, uh, the different stories of Rome's conquest were played out in real time with real people really being butchered with the gladiators, killing one another as they acted out these great, horrendous stories. A lot of history in that place, a lot of sadness in that place. But to me, it was sacred ground. There's a lot of argument between the Italian government, it's interestingly enough, and the Catholic Church. And many people like to say there were never any Christians killed in the Colosseum. But I've read to the contrary. And I believe that there was. I believe that there's lots of evidence. We took a tour of the Colosseum. I don't know if I have that image, Brian, or not. And as we are admiring this 
an amazing structure. We were given a few minutes to, to just sit, stand, to look around. Of course, you're seeing the lower part there that was all covered. That is, all the chambers were the gladiators and the animals and all the workers would be running around and moving and there were trap doors that would open up and different people and animals and things would come out and it was a grand production, an amazing logistical process. But imagine that being covered with a, a surface there completely. Well, that's where the Christians would be taken and brought out and savagely, cruelly killed. As I said before, I think this place is sacred ground. And I, I actually took some time after, as we were on the tour, to sit at a, they had a set of bleachers uh, on one side, and I, I sat and I read this part of the scripture, thinking about the men and women of faith that chose this same faith that we choose, who walked this same faith of life that, that we have chosen, that struggled in this life like we have chosen. And I, I was thinking about them, and I was thinking about my faith and my struggles, and I haven't struggled like they did. I haven't been taken to a Colosseum and put to a sword. Deny Jesus Christ and you will live. If not, you're going into the Colosseum where you will die. That was their faith. And I thought, should I be ashamed? No. What would they say to me if they could speak? Would they say, would they be happy that I didn't have to endure that? That I hadn't had to endure a life of persecution that we haven't? I think they would. They would be happy for us. So the passage that I read when I was there was this in verse 36. He said, still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. I wept as I read that in the Colosseum. It was such a powerful, powerful moment. Some of the things that Nero did to Christians in Rome were just 
horrendous. And in fact, the passage that we read there even refers to some of them. The Roman historian Tacitus described Nero's methods of execution. He dressed them in wild animal skins where they were torn to pieces by dogs. They, were, of course, were crucified. And some, not specifically in the Colosseum, but around Nero's gardens, some were put on posts and ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. They were those that chose this faith that we choose. They were just like us. So what is described in Hebrews is really very accurate, very real, and there is significant evidence for it. And not only was the Colosseum sacred ground because of those that had been killed there, the Christians that have the faith that we do, it was also because of how the Colosseum came about. Because I didn't realize until we were there and and pulling all the pieces together, that the reason the Colosseum was able to be, to be built was because of all the treasure and plunder from the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD paid for the construction of the Colosseum that opened in 90 AD. Think about that. And in fact, we've got a couple of images here. This is the Ark of Titus. And it's a very famous triumphal proclamation that, that he's making about his exploits. And in the next image, you see Joseph pointing at this section here toward the, the top before it starts the Ark. And a close-in shot. You recognize that symbol up there? You may have seen this before, but that's the menorah from the temple. This is the sacking of Jerusalem and the removal of all the things that were in the temple. Plus, because he was a, a dictator, and dictators never you know, miss the opportunity to propagandize, it also shows that he took the Ark of the Covenant which is complete fabrication because it wasn't there. But nonetheless, we do know that, that everything they took from the city was used to build the Colosseum. So what is our response? What do we do with all this information? Do we feel shame? Do we feel like our troubles are really not as big as their troubles? Well, maybe we do feel that way a little bit, but I don't think we should feel shame. I think we should feel grateful that we have lived in a time of peace for people that have chosen to follow God and have the, the faith of the early church. So what is our response? Well, as I was uh, sitting there in the Colosseum reading this passage, I 
really had this sense that I was being watched, that we're all being watched. And in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, we're very familiar with this passage. He says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Think about that. A great crowd of witnesses. They are all the faithful that have gone before. They're all the faithful that gave their lives, that died in the Colosseum, in the Circus Maximus, and many other places throughout the empire. I imagine them sitting there in the Colosseum, watching us, watching us as we struggle to walk in this life of faith, committing ourselves, this faith that they committed themselves to. And what are they saying? What are they yelling out? What are they cheering as this great crowd of witnesses in this amazing amphitheater of the Colosseum? What are they saying? Keep going. Don't give up. Get up. Follow Jesus. Trust him. Walk in faith. Don't give up. Keep going. Follow Jesus. Keep in this faith. They're not judging us. They're not condemning us. They're encouraging us. That's the imagery that we get here from Paul. He says that, that they're, lay, they're, they're yelling out to us. They're telling us, lay aside every weight. Get rid of all that stuff. Let Jesus come and take all of that away. Let the Father cleanse you of all of the weight of sin that so easily besets us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who had endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. They're watching us. They are the crowd of witnesses, encouraging us to continue. Continue in the faith that they had. Continue in the faith that we have. What will your answer be to the faithful? What will your answer be to the crowd of witnesses? I think it'll be to continue. Yes? To continue in this faith. Trusting in Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the author 